Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. It's Monday, March 20th, 2023. It is just about 10 days before a state budget is due for the start of the new fiscal year, which begins April 1st. My guest today is State Senator Liz Kruger, a Manhattan Democrat who chairs the Senate's Finance Committee and is intimately involved in the state budget process. Senator Kruger, along with her state assembly counterpart, presided over weeks of hearings on Governor Kathy Hochul's $227 billion executive budget and then helped lead the crafting of the Senate's one house budget resolution, which was passed this past Thursday, March 16th. Just before that vote by the Senate, Senator Kruger spent a good chunk of Thursday debating Republicans on the Senate's budget resolution, which was written by its Democratic supermajority. I watched a lot of that floor debate, and it was very fascinating. We're going to get into some of the topics that came up here, some of the biggest pieces of the Senate's one house budget resolution and, of course, how it differs from the governor's proposals. Both the Senate and the Assembly have passed their one-house budget resos with a lot of agreement between the two Democratic supermajorities, but many areas of divergence from Governor Hochul's spending and policy plans. These are statements of values. They are broad outlines of how the two legislative chambers want to spend state money, as well as their stances on a host of policy considerations, and they now set the stage for the final weeks of negotiations among the two Democratic majorities and the Democratic governor, Governor Hochul negotiating her second budget as governor and the first since winning a term of her own in the election this past fall. Just a few of the many issues of contention and up for negotiation and debate include how to address New York's housing affordability crisis, how to fund the MTA and cover its operating deficit, whether to again change the state's bail laws, whether to raise the cap on charter schools in New York City, whether to raise tuition at CUNY, whether to continue certain economic development tax breaks and incentives, uh, millions in tax credits to the TV and film industry for Madison Square Garden, uh, for a new Belmont racetrack, uh, that's more of a loan than a grant or an incentive or a tax break. But there's a lot of different pieces to the debate here over where this state budget will head. It's due by April 1st. We know that in Albany, the budget is often a little bit late. Last year was about eight days, I believe. Other years, it's been on time. It's varied over the years and decades. So let's get into a lot of it here. State Senator Liz Kruger, chair of the Senate Finance Committee, is back here with us. Thank you for taking the time again, Senator Kruger. Welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. So I just touched on a few things. I didn't even get into things like uh, uh, various other education policies. The two biggest pieces of the state budget are local education funding and Medicaid funding. Um, There's a lot on climate and the environment that we'll hopefully touch on. So Just for listeners here, we're going to get into a bunch of stuff, but we're not going to be able to touch on nearly everything because there is so much that goes into state budget negotiations, both on the spending front and on the policy front. So we'll get to what we can get to here. Um, Describe for people where we are in the process and what comes next. Right after we're recording this discussion here, you're heading uh, to, to the next phase of the discussion. So where are we in the process and what comes next? Great. 
So the governor puts out her executive proposed budget. We then kick start our budget hearings on every major section of the budget where her agency heads are invited in to answer questions about her budget and then the public are invited in to testify about their concerns of what's in the budget and what's not in the budget. That's about 17 separate hearings over the course of 13 full days and nights. Um, then we get going on each house, drafting what we call our one house budget resolutions, where we take the information that we gleaned from both the executive budget, the hearings, testimony submitted by constituents, people lobbying us from all over the state, the opinions of all our members. It's quite the challenge to narrow that down into an actual sort of summary of what our budget would support and not support in the governor's budget, what we would add, what we would subtract and what we would replace. So it's fairly complex and we come up with a very long laundry list of things we agree and disagree with. So those we passed in each house last Thursday, the Assembly and the Senate. Yes, of course, because we're both Democratic houses, we talked during the process, we sat side by side during the hearings. So it's not that surprising that there are many places where we agree in our one house budgets, but not on everything. Now we start the process after the kickoff of the mothership meeting, where again, um, Carl Hasty from the Assembly, Andrea Stewart-Cousins from the Senate, name people to what's called the mothership central committee. Um, that's the ultimate, I guess, determiner of where we're negotiating. And then also issue groups of the Assembly and the Senate to work together to narrow down from the one houses where we really do agree, don't agree, what we're willing to fight to the death for, what maybe we aren't. And then very quickly, or literally almost at the same time, we start what's called three-way negotiations on sub-issues, many, many, many of these meetings, where it's the staff of the governor, the assembly, and the Senate in rooms together saying, okay, this is what my house wants. This is what my house wants. This is what the governor wants. Can we come to agreement? Can we agree to throw it away because we're never gonna come to agreement? Can we negotiate something we can all live with? And we build towards a final set of budget bills that need to pass both houses and be balanced between revenue and expenditures. Our constitution requires it's a balanced budget with our goal being um, the last day in March, because the new budget year starts April 1st, as you pointed out. Sometimes we hit that mark. Some days were, some years were just a couple of days over, which really doesn't affect much. And some years that I've been here, we used to go on for months and months and months. But we've actually pretty much stopped that approach um, about 10 years ago now. So I'm assuming we probably will be close to the April 1st deadline this year. Okay, and there's always, where the calendar falls is always interesting because you have um, March 30, you know, the end of March on a Friday. So, you know, people sometimes 
we'll get a little more urgency under them to wrap things up so they can head home from Albany for the weekend, perhaps. Or they say, you know what, we're going to be up there that weekend. Let's just uh, pack the extra stuff in the in the bag and we'll we'll get this wrapped up by about April 3rd or so. Um, so we'll see. So I've what, been here we'll 20 see. years, Ben. I always tell everyone, bring extra underwear. Pack extra. And yeah, a exactly. couple of, of new shirts if you're a man for a suit and a couple of new outfits. Yes, indeed. Yes, exactly. Um, so. When you zoom out here, um, we'll get into some specifics, but when you zoom out and you look at now the two one-house budget resolutions, the governor's proposal, are are there the the, the top things that you sit back and you say, okay, boy, we, you know, here's where the challenging negotiations are really going to be. I mean, is it is it housing, uh, bail reform, and charter schools? Because those are some of the governor's sort of marquee proposals that she seems extremely committed to. Is there anything else on your list? What What do you look at and say, oh, these are going to be the most contentious and complicated negotiations? So I have a much longer, um, <laughs> a much list, longer list than I think the governor does. Uh, just quickly, we've done bail reform several times. We've done hearings already this year, looking at the data that's coming out. I don't think there's much room in, in either house of the legislature to take on bail again. There's criminal justice issues we would love to come to agreement on, but we don't think the actual problem of growth in crime was caused by bail or that it's creating a new problem. So we would much rather focus on the other issues in crime. We'll see whether the governor is willing to do that. The charter school issue, the city of New York doesn't want it because it would cost them another $1.3 billion that they say they don't have and we're not gonna give them. So the city of New York doesn't seem to want the expansion of charters and the legislature doesn't want the expansion of charters. So I just don't think there's a lot of room there for any negotiations. Just just um, quickly on that, I think the mayor would be is supportive of expanding charter schools, but he just wants the money to come with it for the for for rent, really, for the, you know, well, he says it's one point three billion dollars new cost to the city of New York each and every year. And I'm telling you, given how much we are investing in K through 12 and the growth we've seen, we don't intend to give him that money. So he doesn't have it. He doesn't want to spend it and he's not getting it from us. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure his people are saying, yeah, we can't do this. Um, and again, and I interrupted you. You were, you were going to keep going down the list, right? Um, so you said charter. So, so, so you you touched on bail and charters. I said housing as a third. I, again, housing I'm just I'm giving critical. Yeah, housing is true. absolutely critical. But there was so much disagreement with almost every one of the governor's proposals that I think both houses pretty much said, "All right, we need to sit down and have really serious three ways." and bring other players into the room and hash this out. But the language in the budget did not seem to be satisfactory to almost anyone. So we don't want to leave Albany this spring without dealing with the housing crisis. But most of the governor's proposals were not the ones that were going to go. Although we do put some significant money in for NYCHA we put some money back in for the HOP program, which is for homeowners in trouble. We put more money into what was the federal ERAP program, 
which we're hoping to get some more federal dollars from and perhaps kick in some additional state money to make sure we're addressing the eviction crisis that is now a statewide issue. Uh, we're very focused in addition to our commitments to K through 12 education, making school meals universal for all students in the state. Now that the feds changed their rules and took that opportunity away from us without our putting some money back behind it, but everyone seems to recognize the importance of children having nutritious meals. They learn better, they have better IQs, they're healthier. It's a very low cost option to really address the issues um, for so many children in the state. We've made a real commitment to SUNY and CUNY students without increasing um, their costs by a tuition raise. We didn't love her ways that she was gonna fund the MTA, but we have each both houses committed serious proposals to get the MTA the money we all know they desperately need and are committed to addressing um, we addressed the incredible crisis of people working in human services and social services who haven't seen a COLA increase in their wages for years and years and years. We put in an 8.5% cost of living adjustment, which just sort of bring them back up to where government workers and other workers for the state and city have ended up where we sort of left the human social service people out in the cold for so long. We put another $2 an hour um, over two years into the home care workers crisis, which last year we did, I guess, $3. And the last dollar goes in this December, and then we're adding two more over the next two years. So then there will be $5 over minimum wage for the home care workers. We put more money into Medicaid percentage um, payments for hospitals and nursing homes with real focus on the safety net, distressed hospitals and the public hospitals who after COVID have been going through so many problems of funding and staff shortages. Um, I mean, I could just keep going, yeah. but we really tried to, oh, environment. We put a lot of proposals in for our commitment to a green system of energy and the economy and some revenue sources. Um, and I know I keep telling everyone, if we don't get climate change right, it doesn't really matter what else we do because we won't be around to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And let's try to touch on a few of those specifics in a minute. Yes. One, one important thing for people to understand is that one thing that you um, in these next uh, parts of the process here that you have to agree on is, is some semblance of how much money are we planning to spend in this budget? What is the sort of projection for the amount of revenue that we'll have? That, of course, also relates to, though, what you decide to do on certain tax rates and policies. And there's differences of opinion from the governor who says, I'm not raising income taxes in this next budget. And the Senate and the Assembly who have some tax increases um, on, on the very high earners. Uh, there's disagreements on other types of taxes as well. So there's going to be some real negotiation that needs to happen in terms of how much money will we actually have to spend. And that will impact 
even though we're talking about somewhere, a final budget that's going to be somewhere around $230 billion, a billion here or a billion there impacts a variety of the things that you just mentioned and whether there will actually be funding for those things or how much the governor has outlined some actual overall cuts to state funding to CUNY, for example, while both houses of the legislature want to increase funding by significant amounts. That's just another example. Uh, the question over uh, funding the MTA, what's the mechanism for that? You know, those are things that really need to be worked out. And so the question of what's the revenue, and then the governor wants to put 10 plus billion dollars in reserves, and the two houses of the legislature might say, you know what, we can live with $8 billion in reserve. So here's another couple billion dollars that we want to spend. So there's a lot of those sort of fiscal questions that really need to be worked out here to say, okay, how much do we actually have to spend? And then you get into a bit of where the spending meets the policy uh, sort of after that. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. As I said, we need to have a balanced budget. So we need revenue to back up the proposals we intend to spend money on. Um, and yes, there are differences in ideology about taxation, both the Assembly and the Senate, although slightly different proposals have called to increase um, personal income tax on the on people who make five for the Senate on people who make five million dollars and more per year. So we're talking about the extremely wealthy and the percentage increase would not, I'm very confident, be enough to make anyone decide to no longer do business in New York State. Again, for these people, they may already not live in New York State. In fact, probably most of these people have multiple homes inside and outside the state. But if they're earning their money here, they still have the PIT obligations. And we believe that the amount we've proposed increasing on 5 million and up would not impact people picking up and leaving and stop doing business in New York but that money can go an incredibly long way to help us pay for the priorities that make the state a great state. I mean, if you were listening to the debate on the floor last week, my Republican colleagues kept saying, you know, you can't raise taxes. And I kept pointing out that all the research shows that the reason people come to New York, open businesses, stay in New York is not because of their local and state tax rates, but is all about do we have the infrastructure that they need and want to live here? So our budget focuses heavily on making sure we have clean air and water, we have functioning mass transit and roads and bridges because we're still so dependent throughout the state on unfortunately cars. We have money to invest in education because what businesses want, they want an educated workforce to work for them. Um, they want access to utilities and we're heading rapidly to a green economy of green utilities. Those are the things that keep states strong and actually help them pull out of bad economic times quicker. So we're focused on that. And some of my Republican colleagues spent their time on the floor arguing it's all about taxes for the rich. And we just fundamentally disagree with that, with them. Now, understanding that perspective, there's also elements of this, uh, of the various state budget proposals that include 
things like increasing the film and TV tax credits and, and various other things that are often characterized by watchdogs and experts as sort of corporate welfare that they really question uh, the need for, the utility of, and yet you sort of include include those pieces or either include them or seem very willing to continue to include them in the budget or increase them. Is there a little bit of a contradiction there when you're saying the key really for broadly speaking, businesses locating here, keeping businesses here, are these other broader infrastructural considerations? What about those hundreds of millions of dollars overall more than a billion dollars um, and and different think tanks and others have different estimates on this. But what is the thinking in terms of continuing those sorts of corporate policies at the same time? Why so, not invest that money in the broader infrastructure, I guess, is the question. Well, one, those are tax exemptions. So ending them doesn't hand us cash to use for something else just to separate out a tax exemption, a credit, a loan, as you described with the Belmont story, um, an actual cash on hand. So those really are three different things. But since you're asking me, I will tell you, I am one of 63 senators, 42 majority senators. I'm actually not in love with any of those business tax credits. Um, I am just representing the the majority position of my conference. So Mm -hmm. I actually have spoken out against many of these tax credits. I am not a big fan of expanding the film and TV tax credit. The dilemma for the state of New York there is that so many other states keep expanding theirs that we are in this, what I describe a race to the bottom range war with all these other states and people fearing that they lose the businesses that have moved to New York because of the amounts of our tax credits. And we're actually spending them down far more quickly than the annual year that they're supposed to be spent in. So they made the case for why they needed a larger amount. Again, if I was queen for a day, Mm -hmm. I probably would not be including that in the budget but I have total respect for the fact that I am one legislator who needs to negotiate with my own conference as well as the assembly and the governor. I'm also not a fan of the Belmont deal um, because I think horse racing is is no longer a sport that people want to go to and gamble on because we've created all these other kinds of gambling, which by the way, as I think you know, I'm also opposed to, I'm not a gambling person, mm-hmm. or nor do I think that this is a good move for the state of New York. And I keep losing on that fight also. So I've lost on the Belmont fight as, all, as well, but I have tried to put language in that when they expand Belmont, they intend to close aqueduct race on track in Queens. And I put language in, hopefully that will make it into the full budget, requiring that the aqueduct land, which is 110 acres, is primarily used for building affordable housing when the racetrack is torn down. So I'm hoping to get some win from this deal that I actually don't support. So as a legislator, you learn that you win some, you lose some, you try to stay focused on your priorities, and you have to understand and respect the fact that technically you're one of 212 legislators up here. You're not going to agree on everything. 
Understood. And that's, and that's great insights into, uh, uh, I don't know if you like the term sausage making that goes into exactly. legis- legislating and budget uh, uh, negotiations. And, and of course, there's a lot of competing interests, even within a democratic majority, within a democratic supermajority, then you have to deal with another one, and then you have to deal with the governor's priorities. So points all all taken there. And, and it's good to hear your insights and your personal uh, legislative perspective on some of this. And your point is well taken on the tax credit piece. I mean, this obviously has flashbacks to the biggest example of all this in recent years, which was the Amazon HQ2 deal, where you talked about um, you know, sort of competing with other states and these questions. And then also the very important point that when you're talking about tax credits, you're talking about only a return of of money that comes in. It's not a it's not about handing money out necessarily. And most of uh, the discussion around the Amazon deal also often sort of mistakenly characteristic uh, characterize some of that as just sort of the state handing out this money when when most of it was structured as something where it would be returns on revenue that came in. However. The debate then also gets into the point, which I think you have noted, of course, which is, well, do they really need these to operate in New York, right? Is this really necessary? Or is it about the fact that we would have just about the same amount of, uh, you know, film and TV shoots here, and we don't have to give back the the some of the tax revenue? So that's, that's sort of the question that some people get into, even with understanding that competition among states and, exactly. and the different policies. Exactly. All right. One of the biggest things here uh, that we should spend a little more time on that goes to your point about infrastructure uh, in, in its broadest meanings is this question around housing. So is it important for people to understand or or correct me if this is a bad characterization, but what you did as a state Senate was you stripped out and you noted a lot of the policies in the governor's proposal, which included a lot of sort of mandates uh, and mechanisms for ensuring that localities build more housing, stripping out a lot of those those requirements and those uh, elements around zoning changes, stripped a lot of that out, but you put in sort of values around, we do want to increase housing production. We do want to offer infrastructure funding to localities that build new housing, but that that's not the totality of where you're willing to go as a Senate, but that's sort of now your position going into these negotiations. Is that sort of a fair way to say it? Yes, I think that is a fair way to say it, because I don't know any legislator, at least from Westchester South, who doesn't recognize that we need more housing and more affordable housing in the state. And I won't limit it there because some of my upstate colleagues from Syracuse, Rochester, Albany, Buffalo are very, Binghamton are very outspoken for the need for more affordable housing. So it's it's a statewide issue. The, the issues and how the answers may play out can be very different in different parts of the state um, because the problems and what caused them can be very different. So I'd say kudos for the governor for trying to do a housing compact and do so many things at once. And it's not a lack of respect for her or her goal that we said, we need to sit down and hash these things out together. There's not enough here that everybody can back for this to work, but it's not because we don't want this sort of front and center for the state of New York. We absolutely do. 
the critique of both houses of the legislature going in the direction that you've gone is basically if you don't start to put some requirements for housing development in place, there are just a lot of parts of the state that are just not going to move ahead in any significant way on welcoming more housing. And obviously Long Island is is talked about, you know, first and foremost here. But there's also lots of parts of New York City, as as you well know, that that don't really want to increase housing supply, population density, and and so forth. Um, is the state Senate thinking about ways to take some of what the governor's proposed, which is based on a, a fair bit of you know sort of research and evidence from other places, um, and look at some of this and say, you know, there are some mechanisms that we could potentially live with that do insist on more housing because a lot of experts say an all uh, all carrots no stick approach just isn't going to work in a lot of places in the state. Uh, yes, I think we do recognize that we have to figure out how you work with various parts of the state with the pressures on them to come up with answers. Um, New York City is a little more or less complicated because, of course, when you come into zoning and density questions, you're pretty much dealing with the city council and the mayor, right? They do rezonings and they do density issues. Um, you know, I represent, I guess, my district and the one on the west side are the two densest, dense, most sure. densely populated um, districts, I believe, in the country is what we've learned. So I know all about population density <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and sky high towers going up on every second block in my district. Um, but, yes, there are plenty of parts of the five boroughs where you would need to do some rezoning for expanded multifamily um, options. And I absolutely support the city in going down that road. Um, I actually am totally open to the commercial to residential conversions of buildings, many of which would be my district and then a little farther west, and I guess some in downtown Brooklyn. Um, I want mandatory affordability in those buildings because I am very focused on making sure we are focusing on truly affordable units. The city and the governor didn't seem to want to build in requirements for affordability mm -hmm. or very much affordability. So we would like to push that envelope towards more affordability. There are the issues of the cellars and basements, which is more the rest of the boroughs. I don't really have too many buildings like that, in Man at least in core Manhattan. Um, there were some debates about the safety concerns of those proposals, but I think the city of New York could do a lot there. Um, again, more likely not necessarily core Manhattan because that's not what we have. But are you, are you, when you purposely, when you very specifically say the city could do more, the city could do more, are you, is that sort of you saying we want to leave this up to the localities to to do that? Be, you know, tell no, me I was saying that there are different okay. different issues in different parts of the state. Uh -huh. So when we were talking about New York City, where you and I are from, a lot of the issues actually are to be dealt with by city government, not state government. And I don't think the governor put in that much language for New York City specific, um, other than if, I think the transitional 
transition of commercial to residential. Well, if if, if, like. yeah. if two of her, you know, if two of her pieces go through, especially, I mean, there, there's more than this, but if her um, transit oriented development requirement uh, were to go through, that would that would affect a lot of New York City, especially some of sort of the outer reaches of the subways um, where, you know, there isn't really uh, that much housing growth and development around a lot of uh, subway stops, you know, sort of in the in the quote unquote outer boroughs uh, at times. And and then also just the idea of setting into law a growth requirement for every community district. I mean, that would then, you know, that that would apply very locally in New York City to a bunch of places that haven't seen a lot of housing growth um, over over many years. So, I mean, there's there's a couple of big ones that that would not only sort of um require and juice housing development in Long Island and other places, but even in parts of the five boroughs, again, mostly outside of your district. Although again, in the five boroughs, the the city doesn't need the state for that. It can do that now anyway. Mm -hmm. And maybe it has not, but there's nothing stopping the city from doing it. And the city says it wants to do more housing. So I'm, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just simply pointing out well, in some cases, the city of New York could do those things, whether we put anything into writing or not at the state. Well, and, and that's true. And that's true on Long Island and other places, too. But when you come and, and I think I think some of this tell me your perspective on this. I yeah. think some of this really gets to sort of the governor taking an executive position, looking at the whole state and then individual legislators, of course, being hyper focused on their districts. And then that, you know, coming back into the. Um, you know, the discussions that you were getting at earlier and how, you know, individual legislators and and crafting a one house budget and then that how that relates to the larger budget negotiations where people are hyper focused on their districts and not necessarily not necessarily wanting the the governor, the executive to sort of impose mandates on their on their localities. Of course, you know, that that makes a lot of sense in some ways, although there's probably some legislators who would love to say, yes, please take this off my plate <laughs> for decision-making. I don't want to have to weigh in on, uh, you know, uh, city council members, for example, wanting these mandates in place to say, you know what, the state passed these mandates. Now I don't have to battle with you on every single land use. And that's true. Item. And look, I'd be happy to help them. I was simply pointing mm-hmm. out that when you look at the city of New York, we have elected officials who say they want all this to happen. Uh, While we look at other counties, they don't always say they want mm-hmm. this to happen as you Mm -hmm. pointed out with Long Island. So that's why I'm trying to point out that maybe different carrots and sticks work differently in different parts of the state. Can you tell us a little bit on the, on the transit oriented development, especially that one, I was, I was a little surprised there wasn't sort of anything in the state Senate's one house budget resolution to even sort of nod a little bit more that, you know what, there should be more dense housing around mass transit stops wherever the MTA region takes those takes those stops. Was there any uh, discussion in in the state Senate supermajority about that specifically and about whether that's that's something that you could find a a compromise on? I think we can find a compromise. Yes. But Mm -hmm. again, because we didn't think the issues were so much New York City, but more in the surrounding counties, we really wanted to have an opportunity for the players to sit down at the table together and talk through 
what their concerns were, because there were many, many concerns mm-hmm. um, for, coming from, on different issues from different counties. I know I have to let you go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Can I take one more minute for you to explain sure. what you're trying to do on changes to the marijuana law that you uh, helped shepherd through? I was going to ask you about this because there's been so much discussion about how the rollout of legal uh, adult use marijuana has gone. And then our friend Zach Fink at New York One had a story that this is part of the budget negotiation. So he uh, he got there first. I don't um, know if it's part of the budget negotiation. Okay, there is a freestanding bill. We are three way negotiating it. I would love it to be passed as quickly as possible. So if the quickest possible is in the budget. That's my model. If the mm. quickest possible is we come to three-way agreement today and we put, want to put it on the floor tomorrow, that's my model. Let's say I quickly what you want to do, what what changes, what, what are the key changes you want to make to that law? So the bill would significantly increase penalties on the illegal shops because right now they don't really think they face any penalties except an occasional sheriff coming through and pulling the stuff off their shelves. With no other penalty, and that's not working. Um, penalties on landlords who intentionally and knowingly rent to illegal stores. Penalties on um, actually selling illegal product, even though we don't want to go back into a criminal model for marijuana. We never did. Um, but actual real penalties for the sale of illegal product, because what they're selling is illegal product coming in from other states that we don't even know what it is. And the testing shows some of it's pretty crappy stuff. Mm-hmm. Increased penalties for selling to children uh, because that was in our law, but we need to make sure that NYPD and other police departments understand they actually have, we believe, quite a bit of authority to do more than they've been doing. So we wanna make sure we're clarifying that in this new law so everybody knows what tools they have Tax and finance would have the tools to pull licenses for, so you open a store, you have a CBD license, perhaps you have a license to sell tobacco products also. If we catch you selling illegal cannabis, you lose all your licenses forever. And we think that will be a significant um, discouragement. So it's a detailed bill going after a variety of ways to prevent these stores from continuing in business. All right, thank you for taking the final minute there. I appreciate all the time. I have to let you go to the next phase of the the state budget process. State Senator Liz Kruger, thanks very much for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. I always enjoy it. Take care. (laughs) 